3: Welcome, everybody, to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I hope you're having a wonderful summer. We're back for what we'll call Season 4 after our little bit of a summer break. And I'm happy to be joined today by Noah Ehrenstein for our kickoff episode of the season. Noah's got a very diverse background. He's done a little bit of everything, so there's a good chance you've run into him or one of his projects in some capacity. He's been a cook, a writer, a lawyer, a restaurant owner, an event planner. He does it all. So uh, he currently uh, has the owner of El Atoradero, which is in Brooklyn. They've also got a taqueria in Gowanus. They just opened up a mess. Es Calbar, he's the co-founder of Real Cheap Eats, which was a web, which is a website to seek out the best food under ten dollars in New York. And he's also written for a lot of publications, uh, Savour, Thrillist, and many others. Uh, Noah, we're going to talk a lot about everything that you're up to and everything you've done in
4: the past. Welcome to the program. I'm so honored to be the uh, season premiere guest. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Yeah. So I, I want to start off by. Uh, not right at the beginning, but I want to talk about when you were a lawyer, I want to talk about you being in New York city and being a lawyer, how are you balancing your day job and then your, uh, love for food and the things that you're sort of doing either at night or on the side or maybe during the day while you're being a lawyer.
4: So I'm still technically a lawyer. I'm still practicing, uh, much less than when I, before I opened a restaurant, um, yeah, it was very cool how I, how I got into it. It was, I kind of came in through like the back door. I started as a, um, I, I honestly just like started a food blog in 2010 and from there started meeting people. And at that time I was much less busy as a lawyer than I became, um, then, you know, it was very, it was, it was, it was just like an out, one of the rare outlets I had, you know, for a time I was working 70, 80 hours a week as a lawyer. What kind of and, law? Uh, a lot of, like, lit- first First, I was a litigator, like uh, commercial litigation. Um, my, my family is actually all criminal defense attorneys uh, in Cincinnati. So I had that background, too. I worked for the Innocence Project, which uh, they're the, the major organization when you think of people who are exonerating uh, innocent people uh, via DNA testing. So I did some work for them, and I did a little criminal defense work, and then found myself in real estate litigation, and which kind of became a good base of knowledge for helping restaurants and working with restaurants and small food businesses. Um, once I started, I, I did a Smorgasburg stall in 2013, and that was kind of, you know, I, I knew a lot of food writers before then, but then I kind of knew people in the industry after that, and people really had a lot of questions about the law, about how, you know, about, uh, you know, there's there's so many areas in food where you're bumping up against, you know, litigation or even just contracts or or anything. So, yeah, I kind of found myself in this position where I was able to provide a lot of people with a lot of help. It's cool because they're obviously looking to you for
3: advice and actual counsel, and you're saying, "Well, I'm starting a food business. Mm. Like, what's the tricks of the trade? How do I be efficient in my smorgasbord stall?" So, for people that don't know that are listening, if anyone in the world doesn't know what smorgasbord is, for some reason, it is a outdoor food festival that's now popping up everywhere across the United States. But in
4: Will, you were doing the Williamsburg, yeah, I did one the
3: Williamsburg one, one in 2013. 2013, yeah, and short lived. What was the name of your it's called Scharf
4: and Zoyer. I think it was a, it was kind of an inside joke almost. Uh, we we were making global Jewish sandwiches, what we call them. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, a lot of what you're doing now, but a lot better than what I could do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, we kind of were just taking. Uh, uh, ideas from different Jewish cuisines all over the world and, and kind of mashing them up. So what's like an example of a Scharfenzoyer and Sawyer
3: sandwich that you were doing?
4: So the, 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 stu- the one that was really close to my heart was a, a tuna salad sandwich on an everything, uh, an everything croissant that Bread's Bakery had made for us uh, especially. And it had you know, potato chips in it too. So it had like this crunchy element. Uh, one of like the secrets to the tuna salad was adding uh, toasted panko. So it kind of stretched the tune a little bit and kind of gave it, like, a like a nicer matte texture. Um, the thing that got really popular, which was always, like, the stupid thing that was on the menu, was this – we were calling it a kugel double down, where it was basically a fried piece of kugel used as bread. So it was kind of a predecessor to, like, the, the ramen burger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember being, like, you know, really kind of pissed off when, like, the ramen <laughs> burger got big. And I was like, this is – yeah, this is the same same concept, and right. nobody get, nobody cares. So, so it was like two
3: slices of kugel with a hamburger in the middle? Not a hamburger.
4: Of? So I didn't do a burger. Okay. I, I guess I did cook a burger at home once with it. I didn't ever sell that. Uh-huh. We did like a, uh, was it the the ajvar, the, the, that Hungarian pepper, ajvar, Ivar? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it was like, um, but we did a savory one which had uh, fried chicken skin. Mm-hmm and something I can't even remember what else was in it and then we did a sweet one that was like a like an apple compote and some ricotta cheese it was it was really nice but it was like kind of a stupid gimmick that sounds good yeah, i it mean was, it, it was good it's, it's, <laughs>
3: those definitely sound like i totally understand mm-hmm. what you were hoping mm-hmm. to achieve with that what was the rationale for doing smorgasbord were you like i'm bored i want to give this a shot were you trying to launch sharp zoyer to be a actual brick and mortar restaurant
4: no i mean in retrospect i was like what was i thinking <laughs> uh you know it cost a lot of money and made zero money um we had uh, my my partner who now is uh, a baker in, in richmond virginia you know he he and I had this this idea to to kind of match to, to for and Zoyer that we had we had done in like South Street Seaport, this like little market and it had done well, and we're like, you know, Smorgasburg is the next step. Let's do it. And in the meantime, he was like, "I'm moving to Richmond, so I was kind of on my own mm-hmm. and we presented and I presented by myself and it went over way better than I expected. and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're in Smorgasburg. and I'm like, oh okay, let's let's do this. Yeah, and I didn't do it, you know. And now, yeah, I, I now like it's it's funny because a lot of people will come to me now because they're like, "Oh, you did Smorgasburg. I'm about to do it. Like, I'm going to apply. Like, what what should I do? Like, is it a good idea?" And I can give good advice, you know. Now looking back on it, but when I was in it, I was like, "What what am I doing? Like, I, I don't really. I'm working all, you know. And but you know, if you think of it in terms of like, you know, a business proposition, I basically spent all week stressing and thinking about." one day of actual service, you know, eight hours where it could rain and could wash me out for the whole week. I was like, this is a terrible business idea. It's not the same at all as being in a restaurant because you've no. got a very short
3: window to capitalize on your sales and then your leftovers, your unsold goods, garbage. where do you put them? Like <laughs> they, you, I,
4: ate, I ate a lot of leftovers. <laughs> I fed a lot of people.
3: You're like, like I those- have
4: 40 pieces of Kugel
3: come to my apartment
4: <laughs> totally. on Sunday. It rained today totally. and I'm <laughs> screwed. I had the, I ate, you know, I was mentioned there's everything bagel croissants. I had a lot of savory bread pudding for about six months. That was all I ate it was I would just like any of the leftover croissants would just go into a bread pudding. I just eat that like two meals a day. It's
3: yeah, it's uh, it's kind of wild that you did smorgasbord and you weren't deterred by the experience so you did smorgasbord and then you continued to pursue this restaurant dream uh what was the what was the vision when you stopped doing smorgasbord for a restaurant and did that vision become el toradero or did it change many times so it it
4: actually changed a bunch so you know i i stopped doing smorgasbord i think the like the like late summer, late that summer, I basically just ran out of money, and I was like, "This is not really going anywhere. I don't really have a plan for it." I took a step back, and I you know I started getting a few opportunities to do some pop, some like you know single event pop-ups. And I was like, "This makes a lot more sense. I can sell tickets." Uh, the people, you know, I felt like in Smorgasburg, I was having trouble kind of reaching the people I wanted to reach because people go to Smorgasburg and they want to try a bunch of stuff. But, you know, they kind of, at the same time, it's like, oh, I want to try the ramen burger. I want to go get barbecue. i want to get wings. I don't necessarily want to eat a cool sandwich in the middle of summer. Um, and at that time, I got uh, hooked up with uh, Tyson Ho, who owns Arrogant Swine just up the street. And he was looking for legal help. And at that time, I kind of was like, oh, I, I can, you know, help restaurants. Um, you know, and, uh, and like I said, a lot of people were starting to come to me looking for legal advice. And I I wanted, at that point, I was like, I want operational experience in restaurants. And Tyson needed legal help. I needed, I wanted operational experience. So it kind of just made a lot of sense for us to to partner up. So that was the end of 2013, early 2014. Uh, And I helped him open Arrogant Swine. And what is Arrogant Swine? So Arrogant Swine is the only Carolina whole hog barbecue restaurant in New York City. And Tyson is this, uh, this Chinese guy from Queens who, you know, has this this affinity for whole hog barbecue and is, is, you know, one of the most passionate, you know, focused people I've ever met. And he just uh, knew exactly what he wanted to do, but like didn't have, you know, needed some help that I could offer in a lot of areas and it just worked. So we, you know, we helped him open that. And after that opened, I was like, okay, this was fun, let's let's try it again. And you know, I was kind of took a step back again. I was, I was, you know, representing some people and, you know, helping people out. I was doing a lot more events at the time. And this opportunity in the this space in prospect Heights came up where, where El Toradero is now. And I never had any intention of op- opening El Toradero. I just saw this beautiful space that was very cheap. And, you know, I was like, this is a perfect place for a restaurant. And we had a couple of things that we were kind of kicking around and everything was falling through. And at that same time, uh, my partner now, Chef Denise, she had this, her, her restaurant was in, in the Bronx. And I was like, this is the best Mexican restaurant in the city. I was like, I love this place. You know, I had written about it for Real Cheap Eats, uh, which was the website that I used to run. Um, a lot of other people had started writing about her. She was in the New York Times. And her lease was, was about to be up. And she didn't want to re-sign the lease because her landlord wanted to raise the rent. So she sold her business before even thinking about it. And then she was like, "Oh, I need to open a restaurant." And I called her up. I was like, "Let's do this. This is the perfect place for you." And now we are we are partners. It's a you know, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And so,
3: you're a white Jewish guy from Cincinnati. <laughs> you partner up with a Chinese guy from Queens to do a South Carolina whole hog barbecue, and then you partner up with a, a woman from the Bronx, uh, Denise Lina Chavez, to reopen her. Uh, Mexican restaurant in Prospect Heights. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious like from a people these days are are discussing cultural appropriation. It's something that is always at at the tip of everyone's tongue. Is that something that you've thought about that you deal with in your restaurants? Do people come in and say like, hey, you're a white guy, like you shouldn't be doing this type of food. Is that something that you've come up against in opening up these restaurants? Is it something that, um, has affected any decisions
4: that you've made? It was, it was definitely initially like more of a concern than I think it is now. Now we're kind of, we're, you know, we've been open almost two years and it's, it's kind of grown into what it is, I guess. But when we were opening, you know, it, it was interesting because, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my, uh, Chef wanted to open what you would think of when you think of like kind of I, I hate to say this like a cheesy Mexican restaurant. So you know like the chili like not not chili lights but like you know she had this thing where it was like a, uh, a, a you know a, a drunk Mexican guy out front holding a sign that said you know come eat you know come eat tacos like two for one and cervezas and we were like how would this look with you know us you know some people come in and they see me standing in front. Like, I don't think that was going to be a good look. So, you know, we, we we did have this conversation and, you know, we did settle on trying to kind of meld the two. I don't know how successful in terms of, like, it looks in terms of melding the two. But the the core concept of the restaurant was to put, you know, chef's cooking in, you know, a more, like, approachable space. Something that's more, like, not not plain, but, like, not something that you walk into and say, oh, that's a Mexican restaurant right away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been successful. It's it's still interesting to see, you know, people kind of come in and expect, you know, an entirely Mexican staff. And we do have mostly a Mexican staff. And, you know, everybody speaks Spanish. My Spanish is vastly improved. I mean, I have... I guess I'm fluent in kitchen Spanish. I know all the food words. Mm-hmm. I know how to tell somebody to do something. But, uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been tough, but it's been easier than I thought. You know, at first it was definitely much more of a concern than it is now. It's just kind of, you know, like I said, we've kind of grown into it and we are what we are now. And people, you know, we're a known quantity and people kind of accept us for what we're doing. I want to know about
3: going from lawyer to sort of investor partner to Mm -hmm. really full on operational uh, running of the restaurant, because... Whenever I go to your restaurant, El Toradero, I see you there. Mm -hmm. And I know that you spend a lot of time there. You're not just a quiet owner or a quiet investor. Uh, How has your life changed in the two years that El Toradero has opened and that you've really uh, put yourself on the ground in the restaurant every single day? Like, do you consider yourself like a hybrid owner, general manager? Is that how
4: you see yourself? Yes. Uh, I, it's it's different than working 14-hour days, pretty much six days a week. Um, that's it's, it's exhausting. It's you know it's tough on trying to find some time to get away. Um, but yeah, I mean it, it's it's been it's been very interesting that you know there's certain areas that I've kind of grown into naturally in terms of operating the restaurant. Like anything that's like legal or regulatory, I you know I can I have a handle on. We, you know, because of my background as a writer, like anything with like press and marketing, like I feel comfortable doing. But then it's, you know, coming at this sideways, like I was saying, you know, I still, I can I can handle, you know, if I, you know, it, when we first opened, like we'd be short staffed. I'd be down in the, I'd be down in the kitchen doing prep for four hours in the morning, like cutting onions and cilantro and tomatoes. Um, you know, it still has this, I still kind of feel a little like I'm a foreigner in, in a kitchen or, you know, in terms of managing staff. I, you know, all of a sudden I'm the GM and I'm, I'm supposed to know how to train staff, how to manage staff every day. Uh, it's definitely been like a, a, a steep, steep learning curve. But, um, you yeah, know, it's been two years now and we're I'm getting there. There's definitely stuff that I enjoy doing much more than others.
3: And you're still open, so. And
4: we're still open. We haven't closed yet. We're not bankrupt. <laughs> Something's happening. Yeah, knock on wood. Knock on the, the cedar. Um, yeah, no, it's. I think it's. I think it's going well. We we just. Uh, you know, it, it's it's where we are now is is an interesting place because now we're kind of a mature restaurant. It's like, where do we go from here? How do we take it to the next level? And you know, am I that person who can, you know, doing everything that I'm doing right now? Am I that person who can help it take? Who can help take it to the next level? Or does it make sense to kind of take a step back and you know, find somebody you know, internally or externally who can help us kind of grow into more of what we are and what we want to be?
3: And so what you're it's kind of alluding to right now is that uh, you're becoming – you're at the cusp of becoming sort of like a restaurant group, right? Mm-hmm. You've got the, the home base, the flagship. Mm-hmm. You've got the taqueria in Gowanus that we can talk about in a second. And then you've got a mezcal bar that's adjacent to El Toradero. And then you also have a spot – um, in Manhattan, correct? That you are so I'm no longer
4: involved in the spot in Manhattan. Okay. But yeah, we, I helped open that last year and it was a great experience. And, you know, we kind of decided that it would make more sense for, for some of us to be in Brooklyn and some of us to be in Manhattan. But still
3: with three spots in Brooklyn, it's it's still a lot going on. So when you say like maybe having someone else Mm -hmm. come in, uh, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that you bring on like a CFO or something like that from a, from a restaurant organizational perspective and being an owner, ring re- relinquishing mm-hmm. control at the right or the wrong time is a very tough it's, decision. Oh, Extremely.
4: Yes. Um, yeah, we, we, it's really interesting to see us on that cusp because we opened the the Taqueria, like you were just alluding to about two months ago. And it's doing very well. And it's, it seems to be the model that is going to work for us in the future. You know, there's a lot to be said about the restaurant, but you know, you know, you know, you, know, you own the the type of model that you have, is so much more streamlined. There's so much less. Yeah, it's
3: it's, it's fast casual. I it's, love it. It's I, order I, at
4: the counter. I'm and like, It's uh, takeout joint. My yeah. partners and I are like, why would we ever open a restaurant again when we can do fast casual like this and serve you know the same if not better quality and quicker and just you know feed more people with us having less overhead. Yeah, and less just you know not even just less less overhead but less you know, there's just so much less stuff that can go wrong. I mean, there's still the obvious stuff, but just, you know, literally the transaction happens and all your responsibility after that is to keep the space clean and get make sure the food comes out on time. Um, so, you know, we're definitely intre- We're going to start exploring more taquerias. And at that point, CFO makes a lot of sense. Somebody who can manage operations on a day- day-to-day basis and, you know, free us up to kind of think more big picture would be, a great position to be in we're like not there yet but we're getting we can kind of see the light which is very cool Mm -hmm. and there's a time for a while where it's like you know that daily grind where it's like what are we working for you know we're doing well but you know it's still very hard and it's still hard to see what the end goal is i mean you can kind of get lost i feel like one of the things i try and avoid and it's so hard to avoid i'm sure you understand this as well is it's so easy to get lost in that daily kind of grind of restaurants, where you know you're you're just kind of focusing on making sure that day is perfect, without being able to take a step back and see where you're going. And you know, to me, I'm, I've always been somebody who wants to kind of take a step back and think more big picture. That you know, it's cool to be able to kind of be like, okay, now we can figure out where we're going, where we want to be, who we want to be, and uh, yeah, it's exciting.
3: Take us through what, I know there isn't a normal day, but for those listening, I, 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 I'm always super curious, people that own more than one space mm-hmm. specifically, like what does your day look like from start to finish? If there is something that kind of, if you can make up like a fake week and consolidate it into yeah, yeah. a day, I want to know, like, how do you start and how do you finish a day if there is such a thing as that?
4: So I live in Williamsburg, but I actually usually start my day in court in the Bronx So I, you know, like I said, I'm still practicing. So I'll be in a suit and tie, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, ready to go, driving up to, you know, my my, uh, fiance works for Fresh Direct. So I drop her at Fresh Direct. So I drive now, which is, you know, hugely beneficial and also gives me so much more responsibility at the restaurant because I'm essentially our delivery driver too. So a normal day would be driving to the Bronx, going to court. I'm out of court by like 11 o'clock sometimes i'll drive back in and i'll go have to go to jetro or restaurant depot or pick something up for the restaurant if that doesn't happen we have we do a lot of uh office lunch catering now so like sometimes i have to be that guy who's you know in a midtown office kind of pu- pushing like a uh, an insulated box through there i'm like oh, i kind of went to law school and now this is what i'm doing <laughs> um yeah i delivered to uh one of my old office buildings like a few you know a few months ago i was like i hope nobody sees me in here they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of questions it's a weird feeling yeah. i find myself in oh yeah, fra- i sure. freight
3: elevators yeah. quite a bit being like all right this, this is, is where is i what ended I'm, up this yeah. is what i'm doing
4: now <laughs> so yeah so there'll be a delivery that happens um you have to the delivery sometimes i'll like to like kind of get lunch or something and take you know take like an hour for myself uh, i'm usually answering phone calls from staff or you know uh, placing orders for the next day um I get to the restaurant typically around one two o'clock. Uh, I'll have at one two like it's normally sort of quiet. There'll be ki- there'll be kitchen staff there cooking, but I can kind of like work from the mezcal bar, which is right next door to the restaurant. Yeah, you know, that's usually my most most productive time of day, which is, which means I'm answering emails, making phone calls, just trying to get, trying to catch up for what I'm behind on. Mm-hmm. Uh, by four o'clock, you know every you know, the, the bar is open, all the rest of the staff is in. Uh, we have every day, so the taqueria is only a mile from the restaurant, but that means, you know, myself or chef are the only two people who have cars. So if the prep has to get loaded up and go to the taqueria, it's either me or chef has got to take it over there. So I'll, t- I'll typically take the, t- the prep to the taqueria. I'll make sure everything's good there. We'll, we'll get open. We'll kind of t- I'll talk to, you know, sometimes the, the, the space that we're at has a lot of events. So we'll kind of coordinate whether there's an event tonight, whether we need to have extra prep done. Then I run back to the restaurant. I'll be, you know, sometimes I get to taste the mezcal, which will be nice. Like we'll have, you know, like a distributor in. We'll have maybe a, a producer in or import. importer. So we'll, you know, we get to talk mezcal for a little bit. That's usually maybe the most fun part of the day. Um, and then my evenings will generally be me bouncing between the taqueria and the restaurant, driving back and forth. Sometimes I'll have to go to Staples in between. Sometimes I'll have to go to like PC Richard and Son or you know, grab something, anything that kind of has to, any kind of dumb job that has to, like, get done, you know, that'll happen. If I can get a few, if I can get, like, an hour in the office, down in the basement, you know, work some stuff out, then I will. But then it's just, you know, looking at the next day, what do we have? Do? do we have to deliver stuff the next day? Do I have to pick up more stuff in Jetro? You know, like like I'm saying, it's kind of gets, you kind of get stuck in this, this pattern where you're, like, only worried about that day and next day, and it's hard to be like, okay, let's sit down and plan what we're going to be doing, you know, one two months three months six months from now like you know but the you know and, and then the day last night ended at. uh lately the bar has been busy later than earlier so it'll be like eleven thirty, and we're kind of ready to like start doing the last call then we'll have like 15 20 people to come in and we'll be like happy you know do that feeling it's like you're happy but you're also like huh. you know so <laughs> kind of want to go to bed yeah but i
3: will also but want I, like money, money. <laughs> yeah you know it'd
4: be nice to send my guys home with some some money tonight you know it was a monday night last night right after the holidays, but so it's still kind of coming back. So we're, you know, we're happy to have it. And, uh, you know, I got home at like two o'clock last night. So now up early, ready to go.
3: (laughs) Well, we're going to let you take a breath after that day. And, uh, we're going to take a breather as well. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back everyone to The Line. I'm here with Noah Aaronstein. He is the owner of El Atoradero in Brooklyn, Madre Mescaleria, and uh, Taqueria El Atoradero in Gowanus. He's also the one of the founders of Real Cheap Eats, which uh, was a website that basically was trying to find the best food in New York City for cheap, and he's written a bunch of all about food all over the internet. Uh, we were talking about your crazy day right before we took a break, and now I want to jump way back because uh, you're from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that your family you came from a family of lawyers, but you've also got a little bit of food history sure, sure. in your family as well. So tell me a little bit about growing up in Cincinnati and what kind of uh, family food influence uh, constructed your view of food when you were younger.
4: We were uh so we were like a tight Jewish family. Um my uh my mother's parents were like you know what's the word Epic- epicureans I guess. Not mm-hmm. even not even so but like my my grandmother was like an amazing cook. She could bake like you know she would bake like mandel bread uh you know that would like stuff like that like the like classic Jewish baking that you you know classic Jewish Eastern European baking that you think of. So like I grew up eating that and my grandfather his family were fishmongers, and he could, you know, but he, he loved, like, you know, his favorite in the world was, like, you know, being able to find that perfect cantaloupe or perfect honeydew, and he knew exactly how to pick it. It was, like, so so fun to, like, kind of watch him do that. And he pickled uh, pickled watermelons we grew up eating, pickled tomatoes, um, and then just pickles. And, you know, one of the the, the, the clearest memories I have, too, is those, those Hebrew national beef salamis, I love those still, but, like, he would hang them to dry over his counter. And so once they got super, super dry, he would, like, take, like, this, this like, super sharp little knife and he would just cut off little pieces and give us pieces of that dried salami. And it was just, like, such a, a vivid memory of, like, you know, of, of that taste, that that, that uh, concentrated, like, beef salami flavor. Um Cincinnati was interesting to grow up in. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think it was really known for its food. You know, people know it for like Cincinnati chili. That's like the big thing, like chili over spaghetti.
3: Such a weird thing. I
4: know, right? I, you have Coney's in, in Michigan, but like, you know, they had conies. but like the thing was the, the spaghetti, the three ways, the four ways, the five ways. Wait, slow down. Okay,
3: I'm happy that you brought that up. I can talk about it. Take <laughs> us through the three, four, five. Uh, this is something that I heard about from one of the guys who taught me a lot of stuff from Myland who's from Cincinnati and for those people that don't know in Cincinnati there is this very you can get it everywhere right so i guess
4: it's like so the 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 people who originally made it were like macedonian and and greek immigrants so they kind of made that when you think of the 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 beef chili it's not really chili cuz when you when you say chili everybody's like uh, this doesn't taste like chili it almost tastes like um uh What's the dish like? Sloppy Joe's? Or not something? even Sloppy Joe. It's spiced. It's so. Sp- it's spiced so spe- specifically. It's almost that dish like goulash. Not not goulash. The uh, the di- what's the Greek dish with like the bechamel and the meat? Oh, moussaka. But that's that, that has eggplant, right? The yeah, it's, egg it's eggplant kind of and bechamel. Yeah, and the, the, the ground meat. It's kind of spiced that same same way. So okay. it's got like a lot of warming spices. And chocolate is kind of known to be in it, but that's maybe not actually in it. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, missed, like I was looking at... Now like, we're in, a, like, the mole room I know. or something it's like, like it's, that. <laughs> it's like the mole of Cincinnati. Yeah, <laughs> maybe giving it too much credit. Um, so a three-way would be spaghetti, like a very... You know, you don't even think of al dente. It's, like, really cooked through spaghetti. <laughs> then, like, the the, 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 ch- the chili. But you can get the chili dry if you want. But, like, all the flavors in the juice... My brother still order it dry, but, I, you know, the flavors in the juice. Mm-hmm. So then cheese on top. Like a, and it's not just, like, a little bit of cheese. It's, like, this... You know, fluorescent cheddar, and it's like a a whole mound on top of the 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 plate. So it's it's humongous. So a four-way would then be either uh, onions or beans. Five-way would be both. Some places do a six-way where it adds like fried jalapenos on top or or whatever else you want. It's just this like. You know, it, it's it's kind of like garbage plates in Rochester, or like you know, conies elsewhere. It sounds like what well, like it's a, like good drunk food, like yeah. a yeah, like yeah. a
3: high fourteen year old or like a yeah. drunk freshman in college would be like, I found all this stuff in the fridge and I put it in a bowl it. and it's good. Yeah. And so like, is that a quote unquote? Is that like the working man's meal in Cincinnati, or is it like like how did it? How do you know how it came to be? It seems just like kind of a weird, gross thing to put. Right, all yeah. of that stuff on spaghetti. I guess, I
4: well, like I said, Macedonian and Greek—that's and that's like a, the big immigration that kind of happened in Cincinnati early in the, um, early you know, right around World War One. Mm-hmm. So, I guess they were kind of trying to see. They were like, oh, let's. You know, it was almost like uh, like they were trying to be, you know, you know those places where it's like an Italian restaurant run by like Albanians or something like that. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like they were trying to kind of. You know, recreate that. Like, oh, we had you know pasta and a meat, meat sauce. sauce and cheese. That's what people. That's what Americans like to eat, right? <laughs> and then people since there like, yeah, this is delicious. Let's, <laughs> it's like from three different verticals.
3: Yeah. though. it's like you, the cheese is wrong and the meat exactly, sauce is exactly. wrong and the
4: spaghetti's really overcooked.
3: But it's like it, was it like, works together. It's like
4: if you ran it through a trans. You know, where they run stuff through a translator <laughs> and they translate it back into English, and it's it doesn't make any sense. But then I'm like, we're like, oh, it's drunk food. But then. Now I'm like, oh, but this was all created during prohibition, so I don't even know what's going on anymore. And people definitely obviously eat
3: it yeah. for lunch. They're not yeah, only everyb- eating it at you know, two in the morning or something like no, that.
4: No, every everybody in Cincinnati is really walking around with chili in their belly. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> gross. <laughs>
3: so you're in the Midwest, you've got you know, chili in your belly and your your grandpa's making all these pickles and stuff. Do you have any general interest in food really like pursuing that as a career when you were younger or is that something that really came about much later when you were in New York City
4: I think as a career it came about much later um f- almost for lack of options and trying to think what I was potentially good at and what I could really pursue um I taught myself that I cook in law school you know where it was basically I'm studying all day and it's like I needed an outlet and I was working in New York City at the time that was actually I went to law school in, in Macon Georgia like about an hour south of Atlanta so like I could make New York City money in making Georgia, where, you know, a couple hours I'd pay the rent. And it was like, we had this extra money. I was like, let's learn how to cook. And I'm like cooking, you know, so I could get like, uh, you know, we could get like nice steaks. I got like a leg of lamb and like we could get like all this nice stuff. And I could spend some time, you know, cooking and like, you know, like teaching myself. So, you know, I got to be a pretty good home cook. And then I came to New York and, you know, I knew I had this writing background as well from uh, being a lawyer And, you know, there was just like, I was, I don't know what really kind of, you know, pushed it. Maybe it was in in Atlanta, growing, uh, being in Atlanta a lot along Beaufort Highway, which has this like amazing food scene where it's this, this great mix between like uh, Korean and Vietnamese and Latino and, you know, all these, all these like combination of cultures and foods like on this one area. And we just explore it and be like, this is amazing. And, yeah, you know, I moved to New York. I was like, I want to keep, I want to keep eating stuff like this. So like, you know, the you know, real cheap eats kind of came about with uh, with my partner James, who you know w- was writing about this sort of stuff too. We, we wanted to just, you know, there's so much stuff in New York City that was not explored that we wanted to be able to like taste it all and kind of bring it all to people's, you know, let let people find out about it. So like, and, it, and it's crazy because that's how I met Jeff. That's how I met my partner through, we were just, you know, we were kind of messing around the Bronx, like just looking at places. exploring here, yeah. kind of? Yeah.
3: All right. I'm going to give you some really hard questions. This is a speed round. Okay. okay? Uh, favorite dish in all of New York City?
4: That's tough. <laughs> favorite dish in all of New York City? I mean, I, I guess I like burgers a lot. Uh, hard Time Sunday's burger is really, really good.
3: Okay. Favorite sandwich in all of New York City? Under twenty bucks.
4: Under twenty bucks. Yeah. Well, what, what would be a good over twenty dollars sandwich? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> you lately? I was hoping to box
3: out the fancy like burger, this. but you already
4: yeah, yeah. lately. Uh, is a is a is a euro a sandwich? Are we are we sure. going there? Lately, this place, Kebab Shack on Havemeyer. Oh, Kebab Shack is good. I love that place. <laughs> like it's, I could talk about Kebab Shack for a while, but that place is single dude central. It's always like guys by on themselves phone, in there on glued their, phones, to their phone, yeah. just like ready to eat, like ready like crush one of those sandwiches.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We're in this... I'm in the same biz as them, yeah, yeah. but they're... Farther enough away I think that we have You know yeah, yeah. How there's like Micro clientele they're not, super,
4: they're not super efficient You guys are much more efficient Than they are <laughs> Yeah they, they, Their
3: flavor is good Their flavor is good I definitely <laughs> like them a lot I, I used to spend a lot of time On Habermeyer And eat there Um Okay Last question Favorite restaurant Now Uh huh And What was your favorite restaurant When you Originally were doing Real cheap eats Have they changed Uh
4: That's a good question My favorite restaurant When we were originally doing Real cheap eats Um were, they were probably a little more esoteric than they are now because I just don't have time to like go to some of those places anymore. Um, so like uh, Uncle Joe, this place in um, in Elmhurst where it's like uh, northern Chinese food, you know, they had this uh, this fried rabbit dish that was just so good. It was like the Chongqing rabbit basically where it's like the little pieces of rabbit you could just like pick at it forever. Uh, and then it had like that, that warming lamb soup. Uh, and there was a place in the Golden Shopping Mall in Flushing, a Szechuan place that was just like... One of my favorites. Yeah, you know, they did like a cold salad that was just like spicy and crunchy. And had every element you could ever want. Uh, favorite restaurant now. See, like I say, I'm 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 so busy. I kind of go to my friends' places. So I go to like uh, I go to Emily a lot. Uh, Emmy Square. Like those are. Those are kind of the places that I, I, I
3: you, you, go there so much that what
4: happened? Yeah. I have a pizza named after <laughs> me at the, the West
3: village one. So you only have to go a hundred times to a restaurant yeah, and then only they, name, times. A, then yeah, they exactly. name a pizza. I only have you. to go a
4: hundred times, order a pizza in a very specific way and then, then I'll get it. What's your pizza
3: at Emily, which is like a pretty big honor. Let's be honest. It's cool. That's it's kind of, of crazy. Cause yes. I'm seeing like,
4: like people like hashtag Aaronstein and it'll like pop up on my, <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? Um, it's a, a square vodka pie with uh, pepperoni, um, pickled jalapenos, and honey. It's really nice. Cool. I like, I like vodka pies.
3: And so they had like a create your own option and you kept ordering it over think, and over? So they
4: have a pie called the colony, which is the, 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 just the, the same toppings and everything but regular sauce. And I would always get a vodka colony. And so the vodka colony became the Ehrenstein.
3: Nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Everybody, that's like the Seinfeld dream, right? I know, right? Like move to New York and you're like, I have a I food item get, named after me. Yeah, I
4: need to get like in a deli. Like the next step would be to get like a deli sandwich named after me. Oh
3: my God, like at, at Second Avenue Deli be, or something that like so cool. that? You could die a happy <laughs> man at that point. Uh, I want to know, do you have any other projects in the works? You've got the the taqueria, which is, is fairly new, and the mezcal mm-hmm. spot that are also pretty new. But are you working on anything else right now?
4: Uh, there's some stuff in the works actually nearby here, but nothing I can really like. Okay. go in depth about. I was kind of telling you about that, that tableau we were talking yeah. about where it's almost like a float. Like, so Before we, we do- went on air, you were yeah, telling yeah. me about
3: a uh- – yeah, go ahead.
4: Like a, like that natural history museum kind of tableau look. We kind of want to do a bar that's like Florida-themed and has that look to it but with like Florida, flora, and fauna kind of around like a, like a central kind of uh, alligator, gator-type bar. So we're kind of looking at spots (laughs) for that. It would be kind of something different, you know? Uh,
3: I want to, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit more about just kind of being uh, the transition from Mm -hmm. becoming you know, a lawyer really into a hybrid sort of, uh, lawyer, restaurateur, uh, who did you really look to for advice as you were starting to work on these projects? Uh, was there someone specific on the food side or on the ownership side, like a chef or someone who was more like, yeah, I've, I own a bunch of restaurants that you leaned on for advice in, in, getting
4: your spots open that's interesting I mean there's a couple there was there was never really anybody I was kind of always on my own on the legal side which was you know good in a lot of ways and you know nothing you know everything was kind of easy to figure out there it was always on the restaurant side where I was like kind of looking for a mentorship looking for somebody who could kind of uh, you know give me some guidance Uh, you know somebody who comes to mind who was not you know I think if I if I if, if I told him this now he'd be like no that wasn't me at all but somebody who I kind of always, like, looked up to as, like, a really good um, example of, like, who I want to be in, in this industry would be Matt Fisher from Fletcher's. Uh, he just, you know, he's kind of one of those guys who, like, always gives good advice. Like, if I kind of had, like, an issue, you know, if I just wanted to, like, talk something out, I kind of, you know, he'd be a good person to talk talk to. Um, who else, you know? Yeah, Matt was probably the guy who kind of came to mind earliest. I mean, I always kind of, you know, it was interesting, too. Um you know uh noah noah bermanoff was somebody who i kind of looked up to in general just as somebody who you know kind of did that same transition that you know I, i'm doing now he he was in law school he was in law yeah. school
3: when he decided to yeah i remember open when Maelan, yeah.
4: i think i and i had just graduated from law school too when he opened my ln and i remember seeing that and I'd be like damn that's what i want to do you know so that was kind of you know more of like a distant inspiration it was, it was noah but uh yeah matt fisher kind of he's just a, a good guy to talk to whenever you need like some, just some, some real advice some some sage advice. You know, he's, that's kind of the, that's kind of like the, the type of person I want to be in the, in the, in the, in the industry. What's the
3: most frustrating part about doing what you do?
4: I almost said POS systems. <laughs> um, what's the most frustrating part? Uh, I think like what I've kind of been, uh, you know, talking about before is like, trying to get yourself out of that daily grind and being able to, like, think smart, smartly and strategically about what your restaurant is and where it's going. Because, you know, it's just so... It's so easy to get caught up in it that you really don't... You kind of spin your wheels. And, you know, I, I kind of think of that, that shark metaphor from, like, the Willie Allen movies where you're, like, you have to be moving forward or you're not... Or you're dead. You know, you want to keep pushing it forward and to, like... You know, for me to kind of see, you know, when we, when I see us kind of stagnating, that's when I get the most frustrated. Like, I want to keep p- pushing forward. Like, that's, that's you know, that's where we need to
2: be.
3: So what's the moment that's uh, been the most satisfying for you from your, over your your culinary journey from, from Scharf and Zoyer to now having these uh, various, you know, Mexican establishments? Uh, what's, what's been the most satisfying moment?
4: I can't say the pizza being named after me. That would be, (laughs) that would be the most like, uh, temporarily satisfying. Um, You know, really just kind of seeing, seeing what we built at El Toradero, seeing it grow, seeing Chef kind of grow into, into this new role for her where she was before, you know, just kind of running almost like a little takeout counter to now we have, you know, having three places and wanting to do more and kind of, you know, growing with her family you know getting to know everybody in her family getting to know you know there's just the diverse group of people who work with us it's just it's very satisfying to kind of all be on this same team kind of working towards a similar goal and it's just been really you know that's what feels good like you know feeding you know seeing somebody you know try a mezcal that they've never tried before like being able to talk to them about you know teaching them about mezcal and basically being like you know, try this and it'll blow your mind and seeing somebody's eyes like light up, oh my God, I've never had anything like that before. Or the same with like, you know, having people try Chef's Mole where it's like something, you know, something so familiar yet so new, uh, it's just, it's so satisfying to see.
3: That mole is no joke. I can say firsthand that it's something that I think about all the time. Let everyone know where they can find your spots and, uh, and when, are, when are you open at your various restaurants.
4: So, uh, El Tordero is on 708 Washington in Prospect Heights at St. Mark's. The Madre Mezcaleria is right next door. A a Tordero is open just for dinner right now, but we're actually planning on opening all day in the next couple weeks, which would be like a big change for us. Uh, The Mezcal Bar is open four till, you know, everybody leaves. Uh, (laughs) And then the the Taqueria is at this amazing venue called Park Life which is across – in, in Guana, it's across from Littlefield, which is, like, a great, like, uh, little venue for, like, comedy shows. And, uh, you know, they do, like, reggae nights. And they do, like – uh, a lot of people know that show Punderdome. They do that show. So we're this big, like, 6,000-square-foot outdoor space with, like, a little kitchen. And we're just, like, pumping out tacos there. It's just – it's so much fun. We get to, like, do do exactly what we want. Like, we – I went to this, this little taqueria in uh, Mexico City that – serve french fries on top of tacos and call themselves mcteos with like big golden arches and we're like french fries on top of tacos that's amazing we want to do that here and you know it's it's just that that little taqueria is kind of everything that we want to to be serving people right now
3: cool noah thank you so much for joining us everyone thanks for tuning in we hope to see you next week every tuesday 11 a.m for the line here on heritage radio (laughs)